I don't think that history will remember this, but I would like to say this. F9 saved the movie industry. The acting is of a soaring ineptitude. The deeper Diesel emotes, the more he resembles a man who dabbed too much wasabi on his tuna roll. That is a damning indictment of F9 from Anthony Lane of The New Yorker. That is the feature review we're doing, but, you know, it's not my cup of tea. It's not my jams. We have a guest reviewer coming up we're about to reveal. Also, John Wertheim, the best tennis writer alive. He's got a great new book out called Glory Days. We're going to, of course, gonna talk a little Federer. Talk Karate Kid, which is a big film back in 84, Charles Barkley, a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, thanks, as always, to everybody uh, for the support. And Mark Rass is going to join us. He's got a new film called Awake, which is currently on Netflix. Uh, Rass is an old friend, so can't wait to talk to him. Thanks to all the support. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. We are getting some mixed reviews right now. Before we get to the guest reviewer, I need to bring this up with Cody. So, listen, we've got definitely support for you, okay? Dan Stanzik, Claire Atkins, mm-hmm. Adam Amin, the great voice of Fox Sports, Alpha Hillwan, my longtime buddy. They've all been listening going, hey, I like Cody. He's different than you in that he doesn't know a whole lot about movies, hmm. but he's very Levitardian. Amin goes, he's very Levitardian. And you're kind of leading into that more. Now, you're becoming more Levitardian, more goofy, more silly. But then we've had some criticism. So J.P. Marietta, who's a longtime listener, goes, I miss the articulate, eloquent reviews. Now I've got Cody and you like playing grab-ass the whole time. I'm like, okay, that's a fair point. And Yvette Franco chimed in with this message, which is going to lead us to this quick game we're going to play. Event messaged me, goes, listen, I- I'm thrilled for you. I-, I love the fact you're on Metal Arc. I know it's important for you in your career, but I've got to tell you, I'm feeling sad about your move away from serious movie conversations slash history towards such heavy promotion of other metal art personalities. I'll stick with you, but I hope there's ultimately going to be a better balance with your authentic approach to the cinema. So I said, you know what, Yvette, I'm going to do a game today. I watched a couple foreign films in the last week because you're two of my favorite movies of all time. There's no way Cody has seen them. What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to do my top 10 movies of all time. Let's just see how many Cody has seen. Because there's also been a movement here to have Chris Cody start to watch more movies. So, you know, if we start knocking out perhaps one or two on this list... We'll go from there. What do you think, Cody? I am going to guess that I've seen two movies on your top okay, ten list. I like it. Before we reveal the guest reviewer's name and voice, I'd like him because I can see him. Give me a, a number here, guest reviewer of F9. How many do you think Cody will know of my ten? He's holding up a two. Okay. He, he unmuted himself to give the two fingers, though. No, I like this. He's taking bit. it very seriously. This is a big reveal here. Okay, number one. <laughs> give me a stage where this bull here can rage. Can you guess the film? Uh, Raging Bull. There it is. Joe Tessitore talked about it last week. Have you seen it, Cody? I have not seen it. Okay, no problem. Uh, the tagline for this movie, on every corner, on every street, there's a nobody who dreams of being a somebody. Oh, it's God. a great tagline. It's a great tagline. <laughs> I have no clue. It's okay. It stars, uh, it's the holy trinity for me. Scorsese directed, Paul Schrader wrote it, Robert De Niro started it. Never seen it. Okay, it's called Taxi Driver. So you have not seen that. Uh, three decades of life in the mafia. Never seen it. Never seen Goodfellas. Oh, Goodfellas. Oh, see, we're playing. Oh, we're doing like Jeopardy here. Yeah, I, I okay. give a hint, and then you guess the movie, and then I have, n- I've never, I have seen. Have I no, seen I, Goodfellas? No, no, I you're ha- lying. I, you're, you want to say yes because everyone's seen no, it. But I know you no, have no, no. That's the thing where he's laughing in the restaurant. He's like, "Oh, I'm a joke to you. I'm a clown to you." I have yeah, seen yeah, that yeah, movie. Yeah. I have. I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you what it's about, but I have seen it. Uh, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. Oh yes, The Godfather. This I've seen. Look at me, okay, we're up to, dude. We're at two right yes. now. This is incredible. Okay, you can do nothing. You can do something, or you can. The next line is the title of the film. I'm feeling very vulnerable with this Jeopardy style of doing this. Like, I feel like you should just kind of say Spike the name. Lee, Spike Lee wrote, directed, starred in it. Best film about Do the right thing. Boom. Look Have at you me. seen it? Uh, <laughs> he hasn't seen it. It's okay. Michael, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. I'm feeling very... I'm, I'm starting to sweat, Adnan. I'm starting Godfather to s- 2. Have you seen no, the Godfather No, I haven't seen Godfather 2. 2. Okay, there we go. Uh, lie, cheat, steal. All in a day's work. Pulitzer Prize winner David Mamet adaptation. Pacino, Alec Baldwin, Alan Arkin. You like Pacino, huh? Yeah, slightly. Have you seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? No. Still sticking on two. There's no way you've seen the next film, which I just watched again, Fellini's Eight and a Half. It's about a director who's struggling to make a film, 1963 Italian film. It's a masterpiece. That movie needs to get over. That movie needs to get over itself. (laughs) Japanese film, Ikiru, you've never seen. Kurosawa, which we mentioned with John Wertheim. We mentioned Toshiro Mifune in the interview coming up. Ikiru, you've never seen. So, okay, this is it. We're at two right now. We got one more spot. I'm pretty sure you've seen my number 10 movie. Those aren't pillows. John Candy, Steve Martin. Road trip movie. Thanksgiving movie. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Have you seen it? I have seen that one. That's one, yeah, of, my, right. that's one of my mom's all-time favorite movies. That one I've definitely seen. I love it. Me and your mom get along great. You got to three. Let's take the over. Cody nails three out of the ten. That is excellent Woo. news. Let's bring in our guest reviewer right now. 
the great Billy Gale. First and foremost, Guillermo, put it on the poll. How shocked are you that Chris Cody was able to take the over? I can't believe that he got three, honestly. It was up there <laughs> in the century. Can I ask you a question, Adnan, before we get into reviewing the movies? So you were talking about foreign films earlier, right? Yeah. What makes something a foreign film? Because I feel like one of the movies, well, the only movie that we're going to review today, if you go over the saga, it's taking place in Brazil, Cuba, Tokyo, Germany, the Dominican Republic. To me, it's a franchise of foreign films. If you're going by locale, that would be true, but it's got to be spoken in a language other than English for the majority of the film. So if The Fast and the Furious, if Vin Diesel was speaking Spanish, we'd be onto something. First off, congrats on the baby. How are mom? Baby's doing good? Everyone's good? So far, so good. I mean, but I have a low standard. Still alive. Everyone's still alive, so we're doing good. You know, years ago, Jerry Madeline said to me at ESPN, he goes, the key in life is frustration versus aspiration. So you'll never be frustrated if your aspiration is low, meaning if you just want you know, your baby to be healthy, you'll be good. But if you're like, man, I wish that she was Simone Biles, well, you get frustrated. The two best pieces of advice that I got headed into fatherhood were from Bomani Jones and Amino Hassan. And both of them essentially said a variety of the same thing, which is there's 10 billion people in the world, which is not, that's not the wrong number, but I messed it up. There's 6 billion people in the world, right? Everyone's kind of figured it out. So you'll be just fine. <laughs> you know, the great advice I got was a guy said to me, because listen, I see great parents and terrible children. And then I see horrible parents and great children. So honestly, it's kind of a crapshoot. And I'm like, yeah, like just do your best. We'll figure it out. F9, go. Billy Gill, all in on the Fast and Furious. I love it. Go ahead. So first of all, a bit of an insulting review that you started this whole thing with, kind of setting yeah. it up for failure and disappointment. Yes, I would yes. like to say this, and okay. I don't think that history will remember this, but I would like to say this. F9 saved the movie industry. There has been no bigger <laughs> opening post-pandemic than F9. I believe that it made over $70 million here just yep. domestically in the first weekend. Prior to that, I think that the tops was like $45.5 million. So movies are making their comeback now movie industry here's a bone that i have to pick with you i understand that everybody's excited that people are going back out to the theaters i did not want to do it i only did it because chris cody asked me to but <laughs> just because people are starting to go back to the theaters doesn't mean that people's time is less valuable we need to limit the amount of previews that are played before a movie amen i went into it thinking you know what i can be a couple minutes late i'm gonna get 10 minutes of previews adnan the movie was supposed to start at 1 o'clock. It did not start until 127. 27 no. minutes of previews. I swear to God, I wrote it down. I texted it to myself. I said 127 p.m. And I even texted my wife because this is a movie that's two and a half hours long. And I had to sneak away from her and the baby. And like, we're we're a month old at this point, right? So I was telling her like, this, this is a big concession. This is yeah. kind of like, I could tell she wasn't super comfortable with it, but didn't want to tell me. So I was like, okay, I'll just do it. I'll sneak back over there. And I texted her, I go, listen, it's 127. The movie's just starting now. Like, I need you to know, gonna be a little bit late. I feel like I saw a preview for every movie that's gonna come out for the rest of the year. <laughs> That, that horrific, and it's a great point by you. It's gotten to the point now, as a kid, I used to love watching trailers, and now to Billy's point, I time it so I show up 15 minutes late. I don't need to sit through all this crap. 27 minutes, though, Cody, that's obnoxious. I thought Billy was going to go 15 to 20 minutes. I'm just picturing Billy, like, freaking out with his wife, like, oh, my God, I'm going to get in trouble. And, like, hundred <laughs> percent. You know, he just says he's got a newborn. He's like, all right, I have a 112-minute window. I'm doing this for Cody and Virk. I'll just help him out. All right, fine. All of a sudden, I got, now she's going to be suspicious. Oh, gone for three hours, huh? What was that about? I feel like Billy's kind of just blaming us, though, for something he really wanted to do in theory. No. Like, well, it's because of us that you did it at that exact time, but this was something <laughs> you wanted to do. I would have eventually seen the movie. I don't know that I would have gone opening weekend. I did also yeah. pick like small theater off time because I wanted to limit like the crowds and just like the being out there situation. Because like we're all just kind of getting used to behaving like normal people again, right? Yes. So like let's make sure that I'm not in a theater full of a bunch of crazy people if I could try to avoid it. Totally true. Any um, capacity limits right now in the theater? Or can it have at it? No mask? Are you wearing a mask? So this theater's regulations were you don't have to wear a mask if you're not vaccinated. But at the same time, like I have a newborn who still hasn't gotten their newborn vaccine. So I'm like, I'm going to wear the mask. So it's and a free I'm just for all. Try to be safe. Honor system. Yeah, I don't like it's an honor system. system. No right, one's honorable. There is no honor left in life. In one last thing, Adnan. One last takeaway that I had from the previews. Yeah. Right? I saw a preview for M. Night Shyamalan. He has a new movie called Old. Is he just disturbed M. Night Shyamalan? Like, does he do anything happy? Does he have any normal movies, like a rom-com or something? Because I feel like every time I watch him, it's like, 
wow, this movie's about children that just age really, really quickly when they go to this beach and their parents are essentially watching them live their whole lives in front of them. And I would assume that they die in front of their parents. Why do we need to cover that? Like, what is going on with M. Night Shyamalan? What is his house like? Is there just sadness around him? Why do we have such strange, sad things? He is a Philly guy, so he's had a lot of sadness. Maybe he's watching a lot of Sixers games. He's upset with the process. An M. Night Shyamalan rom-com, though, I am in for. He should do that, actually. No, to Billy's point, I like a director that can stretch. I don't like a director who just does one type of film. So if you really are a great director, you can do any genre. I, I do agree that he's a dour guy. I mean, look at his movies. There's not a whole lot of upbeat in there. Like, Signs, all right, has a redemptive angle. But every single movie, there's some twist. You're not supposed to guess it. It's creepy. It's sad. It's miserable. His best films were before him. I mean, early in his career. But, by the way, our boss, Bimmel, M. Night Shyamalan doppelganger, and has used that, by the way, which is an amazing card to use. Are you familiar with Chris Cody's Friends idea for a Friends movie that it's just, he pitches it as just a Friends movie, and you watch the preview, and you're like, oh, my God, a Friends reunion. This is a Friends movie, and then it turns into a murder mystery where one of the friends kills the other one. <laughs> <laughs> he had a similar idea with M. Night Shyamalan, where it's like he just makes a normal rom-com, right? And then he puts out a preview and he makes it seem like it's a typical M. Night Shyamalan movie with all these twists and turns just by the way that the preview is, right? And then you go ahead and watch it and it's just a romantic comedy the whole time and everybody's expecting at the end like, oh my God, big twist and it just never happened. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a fantastic idea. We need to green light both of these things. Let's get going, Cody. You're on to something. All right, Billy, F9, give it to us. Where does this rank compared to the great fast? As you said, it's already saved the movie industry. It salvaged it after A Quiet Place to open $58 million. Now we got another $70 million. Got Vin Diesel back, roaring cars. Where are we going? Wow, Fast 9. Okay, so I'm going to be 100% honest with you because why would I just come out and admit to lying to you? So I'm going to be 100% honest with you. Fast 9, I believe it was 2 hours and 29, 25 minutes, something like that, oh, right? Man. Yeah, it was a bit of a long one. Now, here is... Kind of the rundown. The first hour and a half, I was watching it and I was kind of disappointed. I was like, you know what? This is this is a little slow. I feel like maybe we took too time, too much time off. Maybe we're stretching it. Maybe we're trying to make it more than it is, right? Because what happened is Fast and Furious Saga, lots of loose ends, lots of loose ends. They have people that <laughs> die that come back to life. They have these characters that they invent out of nowhere that we've never heard from. One of which is one of the main characters of this one. Dominic Toretto has a brother which is obviously Vin Diesel's character. His brother is played by? John Cena. Obviously, because they look exactly <laughs> the same. So they're brothers. Now, we are now nine, arguably 10, if you include Hobbs and Shaw into the Fast Saga, 10 movies into this franchise. We have not heard one mention of Dominic Toretto having a brother. We know that he has a sister, Mia, who marries Brian. Now, we've never heard of his brother. Why have we never heard of it? Well, we spent the first hour and a half of the movie kind of giving a backstory. And Adnan, before I watched this one, I went back to the original one and I spent the last week watching all of them in sequential order from when they were released. No, you did. I Hang did. a second. You're a hardworking guy. You got a newborn yeah. baby and you're just grinding it out here for yeah. Cinephile. This is good stuff. I watched one through eight. I didn't watch Hobbs and Shaw. That one I had seen more recently. And honestly, I just ran out of time. I didn't have enough time to watch Hobbs and Shaw before I saw F9. But I watched them all back from the beginning. I'm so glad I did because there's so many things that happened in this movie that you would just simply forget. Going back to the original Fast and Furious, where Dominic Toretto, apparently his father, was a legendary race car driver, or not legendary, but he was a race car driver who was killed in a car accident, similar to like a Dale Earnhardt situation. And then he went and he beat the guy that killed his father with a wrench, right? This is something that was very briefly mentioned in the first one 20 years ago, in 2001. <laughs> So this is something, had I not gone back and watched, I would never have remembered and I would have thought was completely made up. Now, we find out that he worked on his pit crew along with his brother. Then there's a whole story. His brother seemed to betray the family, but we find out, spoiler alert. Yo, we're about to expose some shit. We find out yeah. that during this whole thing, his father was really indebted to a bunch of people, so his brother helped his dad throw the race, but they didn't want to tell Dominic Toretto because they didn't want him to think poorly of his dad. So we were going back and forth. That's one thing about movies that I'm not super in on is the jumping back and forth on timelines, right? Where we're going into the past, jumping back into the present, going into the past. So that's one story. And I'm sorry if I'm talking fast. I just get really revved up, no pun intended, when we talk about the Fast and Furious. So we're going back with multiple timelines. We have that one. And then we have Han, who was a character created by Justin Lin outside of the Fast and Furious franchise, who he brought into the Fast and Furious franchise. Now, Justin Lin was the director of, I believe, Tokyo Drift 4, 5, and 6. Now, they killed Han, and Justin Lin left to go on to, I believe, direct like the Star Trek sagas or something, right? Or Star Wars, one of the stars he went on to direct, right? Now, sure. 
In the last one, The Fate of the Furious, Fast 8, what happens? Well, Han had been killed in 6, and then the person that killed him, Jason Statham, now, because of the twists and turns, because every bad guy eventually becomes like a redeemable character that ends up joining the crew, ends up helping them defeat whoever it is that they were going up against 8, and then he joined the barbecue with them at the end, where the family joins, but there was no mention of Han. So from the article I read, Justin Lin was very upset and didn't think that they did Han justice and that his character was just forgotten because they embraced the person that murdered his character that he created. So he jumped back on in part because of the Dominic Toretto twist and in part to bring back to life the character that he created in Tokyo Drift or that first made his appearance in the Fast Saga in Tokyo Drift. So he came on just because he was kind of pissed off that they killed off the character that he loved. So of course he brings him back to life. So the first... But that's ridiculous. It's just so inane. It's so stupid. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But bringing him whoa. back to life. Come on, Billy. That's just that's ridiculous. Come on. Yeah, had he died. But we find out he didn't actually die. Because what happened was he was recruited by Mr. Nobody, who is one of these characters that made an appearance in like Fast 6. But then Mr. Nobody, apparently, if you go by the timeline... Because Tokyo Drift, <laughs> Adnan, I don't know if you know this. Tokyo Drift... While it was the third released movie, technically took place in the future. So along the fast timeline, I believe that it was between five and six or six and seven. So a lot of the things, if you watch them in release order, don't make a ton of sense. So that's kind of what this first movie. <laughs> this is the longest review in movie history. Well, that's the thing, <laughs> is that this first movie, the first half of this movie was just trying to kind of clean up this whole mess of this created character, this dead character, the fact that these movies have come out not sequentially and then tyrese who did one of like it was pretty incredible tyrese just kind of breaks the fourth wall and he's having a conversation with Ludacris, and he goes have you ever like just taken a moment to sit back and seen all the stuff that we've done we blew up a nuclear submarine we robbed a, this giant vault through the streets of brazil we've taken down these massive planes have you ever looked back at all of this and been like man that's really crazy stuff and we leave without a scratch on our bodies. Have you ever thought about that? And then he's like, you know what? Yeah, like I thought about it. And then Tyrese is like, maybe we're immortal. And he's like, yeah, maybe we are. And then he obviously was just making fun of him. But it was almost a running gag throughout the movie because then they do things like they'd run over landmines and cars would flip over in front of them and just miss them. And then Tyrese would like touch himself and just look around and be like, not a scratch. How does this keep happening to us? So they were like, so the movie's kind of mocking how ridiculous it is. The movie was mocking how ridiculous it was. And Adnan, when I say that the first hour and a half was a little long, I'm going to tell you mm. when it is that I bought into. And I said, you know what? This is a Fast and Furious movie. We're back. And it was around the 90 minute mark. And what happened? Good question. What happened was Tyrese and Ludacris went into space they went into space on a car that they attached a rocket jet to and flew off of the back of this giant military plane, which was being driven by characters from Tokyo Drift who somehow went from like high school student street racers to, I guess, military members who are flying these military aircrafts that have rockets launch off the back of. So they had to fly out into space and they had to bring down a satellite, but they ran out of whatever it is that they needed to bring down this satellite. So they decided, you know what? Let's test this invincibility. And they even kind of made reference to it. And they did it also in like 1950s scuba gear. Scuba gear. So like they had the old classic like 20,000 leagues under the sea helmet and like all the stuff. Nice. And it was being held together with duct tape. So that's how they went into space. And they realized, well, you know what? If this is good enough for pressure under the sea, this is good enough to go into space. So they went out into space. Then they obviously crashed through the satellite. And then they got stuck because they used up all their fuels and their boosters to get back to Earth. So eventually at the end of the movie, again, spoiler alert, they kind of drifted over to the International Space Station and were kind of like waving. And then they were brought back into the International Space Station. And that's how it is that they made their way back to Earth. So it's a pretty great movie. Look, at you stuck the landing. There's no question about it. Bottom line is, it's a pretty great movie. Pretty great guy, Billy Gill. Billy, thanks so much. Honestly, you went above and beyond here. Not only watching the film, suffering through the trailers, but also the... Uh, <laughs> the well done review. Spoiler alert. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. And next time we talk, Lewis Prince. Oh, just... I feel for him. It's a good guy. Thank you. A real pleasure to bring in Eljan Wertheim, who's the writer of a new book, Glory Days, The Summer of 1984, and The 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. John is the best tennis writer alive. He is now a great tennis analyst as well for the Tennis Channel. He's a correspondent for 60 Minutes, and now he's got this book out. 
Uh, first off, thanks for making the time to discuss the book, John, because I've seen you're, you're on this junket right now. You're like one of these actors just, just on this publicity tour. But I can promise you right now, I get more downloads than Deitch. I got more than Jimmy Traina. So this is going to be well worth your time. Thank you for making time. Come on. If this were, uh, this, this were me and you in a basement, it was a pleasure to, pleasure to talk. And, uh, yeah, this, this publicity is like the uh, – it's not, not my favorite part of the process, but a necessary evil. But, uh, no, thanks. It's good, uh, good to be here. Yeah, we met once before. I was doing Deitch's pod, and then I was in the hall, and I saw him. I'm like, oh, my God, it's all John Wertheim. And I just started peppering you with Federer questions, and you were very gracious and very kind. The first question is this. So for years, like, I just I adore SI, and you admire so many of you guys. Obviously, Michael Farber. I'm, I'm working with Tom Verducci today, as a matter of fact, MLB Network. Um, and I would always wonder, what does the L stand for? It was L period John Wertheim, and now it's just John Wertheim. What does the L stand for? Oh, man. We, we uh, keep, keep this between us. No, it was okay. um, the story. Actually, it fits in with our 80s theme. It was, uh, it's for Lewis, which, as you can imagine, uh, when Revenge of the Nerds came out when I was a tween, uh, that, that did not play out favorably for me. And I just said, you know what? God damn it. I, I'm going to go by my middle name. And my parents sort of said, not as long as you're in this house, you're not. And uh, I go to college. First day, uh, I'm, I'm John Wertheim. And it's been that way since. So the, the L is for Lewis. Now, uh, now that the statute of limitations has lapsed. L E L L E W, not not even the cool, not not even like Lewis Riddick, not even the L O U, which is the cool spelling. L E W I S, which I think actually is what uh, man, you you you're. Uh, I should look this up. Is Anthony Edwards was Lewis, I think. Yes. Yeah. So That's right. uh, I, I think I think yeah. he not only shared my name but shared my spelling, and you can imagine uh, because middle school students in the Midwest are usually so empathetic and sensitive. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't hear anything about that. <laughs> I'm so glad we got to the bottom of this mystery. Uh, let's get to the book. It's awesome. Um, I want to start with The Karate Kid. I'm going to read some excerpts here. Ralph Macho read the script and shrugged. It felt a little corny, maybe a little overly saccharine. I fought tooth and nail to change this goofy title, only because I knew there was a chance I had to carry it for the rest of my life. But he took the part, thrilled with a $60,000 payday. How about the prescience of Macho to know? Yeah, you know what? This is going to define my role, my life, and I was 21 years of age. I, I found that amazing that he knew that intrinsically. You know, it's funny because he said that, but also he he sort of reported. Uh, he was great, by the way. Just sidebar, he's yeah. he's awesome. I mean, you should you should have him. He's sure. like the most down earth guy, and he was a big help for this. But he tells these great stories yeah. about, uh, you know, he's sort of like, I don't know, you know, it seemed like a fun way to uh, spend a few weeks. And we got to go go kart riding in Southern California. That was cool. And I think the guy who wrote the film, he called him a box of kids, where they just sort of found. You know, relatives of Hollywood types, and everyone sort of thought this was a fun way to spend six, uh, you know, six weeks in Southern California. I, I don't think deep down they envisioned this would be the success that it would uh, turn out to be. And uh, the director, they said, would, would come and he would watch the uh, the dailies. You know, he'd read, "This is amazing. This thing, people are going to be talking about this movie forever. You guys are doing great." And they would all sort of giggle and say, "Oh, it's some corny sports movie." And you know. A couple months from now, we'll be moving on to our next project. I, I'm not sure that they envisioned 37 years later we'd still be uh, quoting it and spinning off uh, you know, Cobra Kai. So I adore Kurosawa. Ikiru is one of my favorite movies. Obviously, Seven Samurai, Rashomon. The great revelation of John Wertheim's book, Glory Days, is Toshiro Mifune could have been in the movie. You know, those cinephiles that know the name. Uh, this is stunning to me. The real slate of hand came in the casting of the mystical Mr. Miyagi. Originally, the part was written for Toshiro Mifune, among the most famous Japanese actors of all time. Mifune's agent sent photos of his client clad in a martial arts gi, the traditional uniform, and wearing the coveralls befitting the role of an apartment maintenance man. He looked the part, but there was one problem. When Jerry Weintraub spoke to Mifune, he realized it would be hard to give the role of a gnomic sensei to a man who spoke no English. And thus, we got this huge break for Pat Morita. Mifune is one of the great actors of all time, John. This is a completely different movie with Mifino in the movie, Mifune in the movie. I don't know if it's as funny or as light, but he'd bring a lot of gravitas to the role. First of all, could you imagine subtitles in Karate Kid? Um, you know, I mean, Pat, Pat Morita is an amazing story. And Pat, Pat Morita, he was in yes. a tournament camp. And he, I mean, the backstory on Pat Morita, I, I never realized. But Pat Morita you know, spoke fluent English. I mean, the, the subtitles uh, in Karate Kid might be a little disconcerting. I was also thinking about this towering well-regarded Japanese actor. Can, can you imagine pitting him with, with Zabka, you know, with these like 22-year-old Southern California knuckleheads for, for go-kart races and for the, uh, the, the crew movies when these guys are like making fart jokes with this, you know, <laughs> Lawrence Olivier with this sort of Gilgood of Japan. Um, it would have been a great, uh, 
would have been a great culture clash. But no, the, speaking English was a prerequisite for uh, for the Miyagi role, so it went to Pat Morita. Morita, great story, as you said. This is a guy, you know, who worked in the Catskills, you know, would do stand-up at two years old, broke his back, had spawned tuberculosis, got that anglicized nickname of Pat later on when he was in an infirmity run by priests and nuns. And you're right, he completely owns the role, ends up being nominated for Best Supporting Actor among the first Asian Americans to receive an acting nomination. This is amazing to me, like just the finances of it. I don't think people realize that how well Karate Kid did. Made $5 million in its first week, another $5 million after that. I mean, as Cayman said, the writer, he said, again, if you told me it would have made $30 million, I would have fallen out the f***ing window. That would have been a huge hit. It practically did that within a month. It grossed more than $90 million. Like, John, this is one of the great outside-the-box hits in Hollywood history. I mean, you know, you, you might have some thoughts on this. I mean, I think everyone's a little mystified as to why. It didn't have a huge marketing budget. There was a great story where they went and they saw a test screening in uh in new york and they were basically like we knew we were onto something when these bankers that came in off the streets of the upper east side to the movie house were practicing like crane kicks uh crane kick. in, in the aisles <laughs> yeah. um but i but i think there is you know some movies are they're huge budget movies or they have a big star or there's uh there's buzz behind it. I, I think these people are still a little mystified why this seemed to sort of catch the gear that it did. This is amazing when you detail just how popular the film became in the terms of tapestry of pop culture. A punk band would name itself Sweep the Leg Johnny. Decades later, it still echoed in the hit musical The Book of Mormon. The lead I forgot this. The lead character does the crane stance. The son of Martin Cove, who played the Cobra Kai leader, would own a vape store and sell a vape juice called Sweep the Leg. Infamous brewing company in Austin makes a peanut butter style called Sweep the Leg. And Cayman owns a t-shirt advertising a car wax called Miyagi's Wax On, Wax Off. And this is the, one of the funniest lines of the book. He owns another shirt that reads, Wax On, Off. And uh, no, nobody says, what are you talking about? Which to me is one of, I mean, I think um, one thing that doing this book really, uh, that struck me was there was so little media, right? We all... We all watched the same shows. We all saw the same commercials. We all listened to the same pop music. We didn't have, you know, I'm not saying this is nostalgia. I mean, there's something very great about the fact that whatever your interest is now, it can be nourished. But everyone saw this movie. Everyone got these references, right? I mean, now pe people quote movies and you're like, I don't even, I've never, I've never heard the actor saying that. I've never heard the show and I've never, I'm not even aware of the streaming service on which you watch that. I don't know what the orchard.com is. Um, <laughs> Everyone got this, right? So once this thing, once something got in pop culture, whether it was Springsteen or whether it was Prince or Madonna, whether it was, um, you know, we talk about about uh, wrestling. Once something got in yeah. the ether, everyone got it, right? It wasn't like people said, "I, I have no idea." What do, you, what do you mean? Where's the beef? What do, you, what do you mean? I pitied the fool. Like once something hit, it hit for three hundred million people. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Obviously, as a diehard baseball fan, I love the stuff with the Cubs because I was like, this is really interesting how you nailed how 84 was so important in their history. Ricketts is a great story. So is Vince McMahon. I had a brief stint working for Vince McMahon at WWE. So I love reading the chapter about Vince and WWF and Hulk Hogan and WrestleMania. And what I found fascinating was the difference between Vince and his dad and their approaches to what wrestling could be and how... Wait for it. Cindy Lauper was involved and ended up being, I don't want to say a catalyst, but someone very deeply enmeshed in making WWF more popular. Explain that for us, please. Oh, man. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I pre preface, uh, I, I do not have a pro wrestling background. So this was one of these chapters. I, I stumbled, <laughs> you know, I lived, I lived Ryan Sandberg. I lived the karate kid. This one was, um, I sort of stumbled on this, but, uh, you know, again, in keeping with this theme that cable TV is a force to be reckoned with, MTV has these things called videos that accompany songs. So you don't just hear the music, you, you see them. And Vince McMahon, unlike his father and unlike um, unlike the other men that own these regional promotions, uh, Vince McMahon understands that if you can nationalize pro wrestling and consolidate everything, there is this coming force of cable TV and you can broadcast you say to Hulk Hogan, look, you, you're not just going to be on in Minnesota. You're going to be on all over the country. Side, sidebar, one of the interesting parts of this chapter to me was uh, in, in the spirit of pro wrestling, how passive 
the other wrestling promoters were. I mean, Vince McMahon basically yeah. just ran, ran over these guys, which is sort of interesting in a sport where uh, you, you would think these guys would be a bit more combative. But um, no, Vince McMahon has taken over wrestling. Cindy Lauper has this this video she wants to push, and she's actually she doesn't have much money. It's kind of her last gasp of stardom. She wants to do a video for girls just want to have fun. Her mother plays her mother because she doesn't have much of a budget. She ropes mom into playing. Her parents are divorced, so she doesn't feel right asking her dad. So she asks this gentleman she once knew on a flight, Lou Albano, could you play the role of my dad? <laughs> so Lou Albano has nothing else. Random, right? Uh, Lou Albano has nothing else to do. He plays Cindy Lauper's dad in this video uh, alongside her real mother. And at the same time, WWE, you know, which was then WWF, they're looking to expand. They're looking to cross over. We need more sort of mainstream. And they come up with this idea, why don't we have a wrestling event? We can air it on MTV, the network that does the videos. It's the middle of the summer of 84. There's, yeah, it's a week before the LA Games. There's nothing else going on. M MTV is looking to expand. WWE is looking to expand to a new audience. They put on this preposterous wrestling event at Madison Square Garden. It's beyond random. It's Mr. T and Hulk Hogan. It's also, you know, uh, Danny DeVito and uh, you know uh, Andy Warhol's in the stand. It's like a it's like a bad uh, it's like a bad Hollywood square board. There are these random celebrities. There are these sort of random pairings. It ends up a being the most watched show in MTV history, and b this wild crossover success for Vince McMahon and his new wrestling outfit. It leads to WrestleMania, which is which as you know is now. Um, I think, I think it's the oh. biggest annual sporting event behind the Super Bowl, but it all started because Cindy Lauper and Lou Albano made the girls just want to have fun video. How's that? How's that for a long answer to a uh, simple question? No, I loved it. You, 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 that is an expansive chapter. You made that as succinct as possible. The chapter on Barkley is about as funny as it gets. It's called be like Mike. I'm just going to read a couple excerpts. And we'll get into Charles who is just, as you know, unlike anyone else um, plays the game like Porky pig gone berserk on a trampoline. Uh, Kirkpatrick, the acid SI scribe, said he was copying a rock in a lard place. People called him Round Mound of Rebound, Leaning Tower of Pizza, Boy Gorge. Barkley referred to himself as morbidly skinny. Um, later said that he, <laughs> he could be even better at basketball if only he had learned two important words. He delivered the punchline, I'm full. Seeing Barkley and Bobby Knight together, I mean, it just, I already love Barkley, John, and then I read this chapter and I go, like, I can't think of many superstars as endearing as Barkley. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the fact that he can be like you and me, and he's just so funny and witty and self-aware, but the fact that Knight comes across as dictatorial and, you know, authoritarian, and Charles doesn't give a damn, and, like, I, I just, I find Barkley such a fascinating character. Jordan, you talk about quite a bit in the book, and Jordan, for all his greatness to me, reclusive, aloof. Um, I don't think he's particularly a great guy. I think if you and I hung out with him, I'd all having a great time. Barkley is the best. And your book proves again why Barkley, everyone loves Charles. The first person element of this book is this all was in my town and I there's nothing else going on. And it's a slow college town. So, I mean, I've witnessed this with my own eyes. I, mean, I saw Charles Barkley eat an entire Mother Bear's pizza. And the players, you know, Chuck Person. And you know, Chuck Person actually played in college with Charles Barkley. So Chuck Person may or may not have gotten some side action, but he, he knew Charles Barkley's eating prowess from the other players there. But no, Charles Barkley was this outgoing, magnetic center of attention, but in the most benign way, really good at that. I mean, I think what got lost is he, Jordan was probably the best player at those Olympic trials. Barkley was number two, but he hated the coach and the coach hated him. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a great glimpse into, if I, if I were writing the, the think piece, I would say uh, it's, it's a great glimpse into Barkley. I mean, he's, He's going to go to the NBA. All he wants to do is boost his draft stock. That's more important to him than making this Olympic team. He wants to go back to Alabama. He gains weight. He's, you know, he's uh, talks back to the coach. Bob Knight, as you say, he's this dictator. He's the general. And uh, mm -hmm. Charles, you know, he comes in late and Charles Barkley, all the players are gathered. He, uh, Charles, you know, Bob Knight is this absolute disciplinarian and you go to play to him because he makes you a man and all these military analogies. And he, comes in and Charles Barkley says, did, did your grandpa die? Because I can't think of another reason why you would own a sweater like that. Or, uh, you know, <laughs> he would, you know, Bob Knight would walk in late and he said, don't you know, we've been waiting all day here, coach. What do you think? We have all goddamn day by a watch. And he's, at one point, Bob Knight's response was, uh, there's only one general in this army and it's not you, fat boy. Um, but it's, it's this great culture clash, right? Between the, uh, the guy who's never had his authority questioned and the player who doesn't give a shit. But I also think it was, it's a really good glimpse into sort of this power shift. 
one of the reasons that uh, sports are so endearing in the 80s and the athletes are so accessible and they all fly coach and but the athletes haven't realized their power and they don't realize the leverage they have and so some of this is charles barkley saying i don't give a shit who you are i don't care if you're the winningest coach you're not paying me anything i don't even want to be on your team and let me get this straight i'm supposed to sacrifice my summer for you this summer was a real pivot point with athletes recognizing that they have more leverage than perhaps they thought they did. And this is a pretty good expression of it. Uh, Barkley did not make the team, even though he was the uh, second best player there for the record. Ridiculous. More great stuff in the book. I want everyone to check out the stuff on Gretzky naturally being Canadian. I love the, uh, the program in the arena. Gush, watching him play hockey, probably a little like hearing Mozart play a piano at five or Einstein recite mathematical tables at seven. Obviously, the stuff on the Lakers, Jerry Buss was known to light his chest hair on fire as a party trick. Uh, the precociously glib recent Cornell grad, Keith Oberman, and there's a great Lee Monfield story as well. So these are more reasons to read the book. I don't want John to give away on that stuff. That's my tease for the actual book. I want to close with some tennis talk. By the way, uh, my dad is a huge 60 Minutes fan. One of the great bonds my dad and I have is that he watches 60 Minutes every week. So when I told him I'm talking to you, he was enamored like you wouldn't believe. Tell him I can set my chest hair on fire. That'll really that'll, that'll impress him. <laughs> a couple minutes of tennis and then we'll close. So People all know that I love Federer, and they go, like, how do you feel? I'm like, what do you mean? They go, you know, like, Novak's going to beat him, Rafa's going to beat the record. And I go, Roger's the best ever. And they say, oh, that's just you. I go, no, no, listen. I don't have to look and say Rafa wins 23 majors one day and 18 French Opens. And if Novak wins 26, like, Roger's the best ever. They go, so you're delusional. I said, no, I'm going to point this out to Wertheim, who knows tennis as well as anybody. It is the eye test. When you watch a player and you go, this guy is better than anyone I've ever seen, if we, we can get all the nitty-gritty, right? Hey, Roger was later in his career. Novak and Rafa were younger in their career. And then, of course, the counter is, well, but Roger was racking up majors against Pete and Agassi when those guys were older. We can go into all that stuff. The point of it is this. Tennis, as you know, is a tennis aficionado. The elegance with which Federer plays, the influence that he has had, the impact he has had globally, the fact he is universally adored is all that matters to me. That's why he's always going to be the GOAT. So you can tell me the Majors record gets going to get passed. It's, you know, he's got a year or two left. Maybe he gets one more Wimbledon. Roger will always be the best. Agree with me, John, and we're going to end on a great note. The beauty of this whole discussion is that it is wide open. Um, you know, what, what is great to you? Well, it could be some empirically, well, how many weeks at number one and how many titles and how many Majors? I mean, I also think something that gets lost is he's at a real disadvantage to being first, right? Like, what, what's the time to right. beat? Or, oh, six, 61 home runs. Now I know how to pace myself. He set the standard. The other two guys knew what they had to do to exceed the standard, right? But I think, no, I mean, I think that's the, the beauty of, at some level, it's like art. And, yeah, okay, artists don't compete with each other, and artists don't have a scoreboard. But if he speaks to you, then uh, I, I think you're well within your rights to, to make that case. And I also think, like, I'm not convinced he's done. I mean, I know it's, it's been a rough uh, 18 months. But for a variety of reasons, I mean, he, he, he genuinely likes this life. He genuinely loves playing tennis. He has the means. You know, he's not, I would say, he's, he's not standing at the Hertz counter line the way Billie Jean King did. I mean, he's, it's, he's <laughs> flying privately. He's bringing a staff. He's got his wife. He's got his kids. I'm not convinced he's done winning. Strokes of Genius, by the way, my favorite tennis book. I hope you write a sequel. I hope it's a 1,000 pages on Federer and Djokovic and Nadal. So that's, that's my next goal for you. I, the next book, you know, just like, just, could you imagine just like a, a three-part, like, volume essays? Each one, Joker, Rafa, and Fed. You could do that. It has to happen. You need another job because you only have 11. But uh, <laughs> book, book agenting is in your future. That's not a bad idea. Um, I wish I wish tennis had the audience of uh, of WWE. You know, I, w I wish there were a million of you. Um, I'm not sure what the uh, the market is, but uh, that's I, I like that idea. That's pretty good. No no uh, no wax on off in that one, but that's, uh, that's that's not a half bad book idea. Seriously. Oh, the perfect place to stop. Uh, by the way, great stuff from Martina Navratilova. By the way, who never gets nearly enough credit. Oberman said this for years. Like what she's done. Listen, we can get into the gay rights for women, for tennis. I mean, like, just a pioneer over and over and just perennially underrated just as a tennis player, as a doubles player, as a singles player. I, I love the stuff from Martina. Make sure you check out Glory Days. Obviously, a colleague of yours at, um, at Tennis Channel, but uh, she's awesome. So Glory Days is the book. Check it out. Support John Wertheim. This was awesome, man. My dad's going to be so proud, and uh, best of luck with the book. Thanks. That was awesome. I, uh, this, this was the winner. Appreciate that.
pleasure to bring back in our friend Mark Razzo. He is the director of the new film called Awake. It's currently on Netflix. The synopsis reads like this. After a devastating global event wiped out all electronics and eliminated people's ability to sleep, a former soldier may have found a solution with her daughter. Mark is the director, along with the co-writer with his brother Joe. Gregory Poirier is the uh, one who wrote the story as well. Mark, welcome back to Cinephile. It's great to see you again. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me back. Good to see you as well. Listen, I, I love the story. First, I mean, that's it always begins with me. Like, How do you come up with the story? Because now I have trouble sleeping, thanks to you. So how did you and Joe first come up with this? Uh, I don't know. It was it, it came from, I think the first seed of it was like when I had kids myself. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> what if something happened and I had to protect one, but, you know, at the, at the account of the other one. And that, that, that was just kind of like crazy Sophie's Choice type thing that, you know, was the seed of it. But, um, you know, just we've all like gone at night, whether it's been studying for exams or doing all-nighters at school or, or when you have kids when you're young, you know, we've all been up late and, and, and just our cognitive dissonance just kind of like evaporates and disappears. And we just thought, what an interesting idea to, to create, you know, a story based in this world. I love Barry Pepper, too. The fact you're going to play a preacher, I'm like, yes, Razzo. Tell me about <laughs> Barry Pepper. I mean, that guy must have stories. Barry's all, Barry was awesome. Again, awesome to work with. He was in for a week. My favorite story with Barry is he had the big kind of monologue scene um, with, uh, with Ariana. And we just, the way it was scheduled, that was the last thing on the shoot. <laughs> and and um, we're starting to go in the morning and then something like very like stupid happened. Like, I don't know, the props guy like sprayed a door to dull it down. There was like fumes in the room and we had to delay. We couldn't shoot. And then suddenly like we're shooting in the church and they had like this like biking camp going outside. <laughs> and they wouldn't stop. And, get, and Barry, as I can see, he's like getting frustrated. And I realized he hasn't slept in four days. <laughs> and he's doing his, he's doing his big monologue and he was ready to come in and do it. And then just like, throwing him off that extra three hours, uh, oh. three, four hours, we had to push it to the afternoon and just the stadium was in. It was, it was kind of like perfect for the film, <laughs> but I, I truly, my heart broke for him because this guy came in so prepared, so, you know, so on the ball. And then he had that happen to him. I, I was about to say, like as a director, sometimes I hear these like, you know, Fincher with the 50 takes and stuff. I'm like, what are we doing? Like I, I imagine, A, you just don't have the budget to even want to do 50 takes. But as a director, you would be conscientious enough to say, no, listen, Four or five takes and we're good. I mean, if look, if it takes 10 or 12, fine. But yeah, yeah. come on, you're, you're an actor's director, I would think, in that respect. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, you know what? So much, for me, so much of it is casting. Right. Uh, casting and the discussions before, you know, before the first take. I think a lot of the work can be done there so that we're all on the same page. We know exactly what we're going for. And then I like to just sit back and watch sometimes. Like for me, Barry, in that scene, Barry is super mesmerizing and... Uh, I think I got him to do a few extra takes just because I wanted to, see. <laughs> I wanted to keep going. Just some more stories, right? I mean, I got very peppered in a couple more takes. Well, that's like Duvall just did an hour with Colbert. Colbert had to literally fly to like Duvall's ranch and they did like three segments. It's a full hour. And he said to him, he goes like, you know, what directors do you not like? And he goes, I don't, I, I can't do a Duvall impression. But he's like, I don't like the ones that are kind of like hovering. And Colbert's yeah. like, what do you mean? He's like, they're always kind of like just hovering. Like they're just kind of meddling. He's like, Coppola's like, I hired you for reasons. Just do your thing. Like exactly what you just described. Like it's all the casting. So you do what you think. And if I need to adjust, I mean, literally as a director, I'm either going to say more or less. That's what John Huston said. He goes, it's, that's, that's all the direction is more or less, but you kind of bring what you're bringing to the table. And sometimes people Wait, overcomplicate things. Yeah, I think so too. I think you can overcomplicate it. I learned it. I learned, uh, I learned a lot every film, but you know, my previous film working with Ed Harris, who's yeah. directed and been around the block, taught me so much. But Code in general, I just try to um, let people perform and let them do their thing. And if there's one little thing that needs to be said, I can say it in a way that they uh, feel like they came up with it by themselves. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, and then. <laughs> so I, I thought and you then, went and saw, then good to go. Yeah, I went and saw To Kill a Mockingbird. Like before the pandemic, and Ed Harris is in it. I'm like, oh, Razzo's guy, Ed Harris. And, and afterwards, oh, by the yeah. way, great guy. I mean, he's signing autographs and stuff. And I mean, I'm not at the point now. I mean, actually, no, you actually, I rephrase. Nobody wants an autograph. Now it's all selfies. That's the new, that's the new autograph. But I yeah. kind of, whatever, just shook his hand. I told him I'm a big fan of Pollock. And he was like, oh, thanks, man. Obviously, a real passion project for him. But oh, yeah. I still think that's so cool you worked with Ed Harris. He, he was just a great guy. He's such a professional, such a professional. Yeah. Set the tone, old school, you know, can't, does what he says, like, does what's asked of him. Right. You know, he's really so supportive of the director. It was so nice to see. And uh, yeah, man, I, I just, I, I, and, and it's funny because I could see 
a lot of Ed's approach in Barry Pepper as well. Like they're, the, the way they approach the things, very, very similar. Glenn Gary yeah. Moss is one of my favorite movies of all time. That, that Ed Harris speech when Moss is leaving, and he's just, just, just eviscerating everybody, and Pacino's <laughs> poking him. It's like, well, the funniest scenes I've ever seen. Um, how's the film been received? I, when I saw it on Netflix, I saw whatever, top five on Netflix, top 10 for at least a few weeks, right? That's great. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was, so the film is doing really well. Uh, it, it uh, was like number one in the world for the first week or something like that. Wow. It was crazy on Netflix. Dude. Um, so that was cool. Critics kind of killed it. So that was kind of, that was also kind of an experience. I, I kind of had fun with that, actually, to be honest. Well, I, I'm with you. Listen, critics were not kind to me with my WWE experience. And I'm with you. I'm like, <laughs> listen, I, I think you kind of just go, all right, like I, I – I, like you, love film criticism and love film, yeah. so I would respect where they're coming from. I think, yeah. like you, if I'm the auteur of the film, I would have issues with some of the criticism. But ultimately, you have to just have a sense of humor about it. Is that how you approach it? Okay, you guys didn't like it. That's fine. Yeah, you know what? So my, my previous films had been well-received, so it was kind of like a new thing for me. And to right. be honest, it was, uh, you know, the first day I was like, I was kind of like, okay, they don't get it. People don't get it, whatever. And then, and then after, I just was like, it's kind of a freeing in a way to have that experience because it kind of like you don't have that pressure or burden of like oh you got to do something in this way to please this people it's like no this is kind of cool you know people don't give a shit people a lot of people reacted to it strongly too which was really nice yes. it wasn't that just like uh, i don't care it was like i hated that ending or whatever you know and i'm like that's awesome i made you react that's what i'm supposed to do oh yeah know? a sportscaster friend of mine said to me years ago he goes you either want to be loved or hated you do not want to be in the middle nobody wants to go yeah. i thought the movie was okay like yeah, like yeah. the worst you know this if anyone watched me what do you think of my film i thought it was interesting you go okay you hated it then like just yeah, yeah. either go i despise it or that was incredible i think part of the issue is like you said with kodachrome with copenhagen like you're those are different films right it's a yeah. softer feel it's a what a romantic sensibility this is like for science fiction thriller you haven't done this so they just sometimes people categorize you a certain way they're just not expecting it i do i do feel i i feel a little bit you know we shot this pre-pandemic i wonder what the reaction would have been if we haven't just been through the year and a half of <laughs> misery that we just went through True. um you know so so that 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 maybe is a thing but honestly like i love that like so someone was saying like you know, if 50 million people saw it and and 30 percent of those loved it, that's still 15 million people who loved oh, your film. You know, so it's crazy. And imagine going the other way. Imagine two people saw it, but the critics loved it. You'd go, no, no, I'd take yeah. the other one. I really, yeah, really exactly. think 50 million people loved it, and the critics hated it. That's fine. I'll I'll make it up to the critics another time. No big deal. Uh, I know you're always working on something. You and Joe probably have a script right now. You're working on now that you're you're in bed with Netflix. This is good news. What's what's next? So actually, uh, me and Joseph, we wrote a adaptation of a George R. R. Martin novel which is super wow. cool. Um, Dude, that's script. sick. Because now you're just getting that audience. They go, hey, from the writer of Game of Thrones, the Razzo yeah, yeah. brothers are now adapting this. Like, that's sick. Yeah. That's written, and we're starting to go out with it, and that's really cool. Very excited about that one. Oh. And uh, also working on a, a TV show. And, uh, yeah, it's got some original ideas going around. But I'm just, you know, taking writing. This is the, 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 the fun hard part it's just arduous like so some writers yeah. say oh there's nothing more painful like you, know, you just you just you just cut a vein and let it bleed and then others go no writers are just babies they just like to complain like it's the hardest thing ever I, and that probably the answer is somewhere in the middle it is painful yeah, right it's work you know what it's work it, and that's all it is it's like anything in life it's just for me my experience anyways it's like the 29 days of just staring at your computer. So you get that one day of being super, you know, productive and stuff like that. And you, you can't get that one day unless you go through the other 29 days. So, so that's kind of the process. Do you find that your most successful writing sessions are well, obviously when you, you go to your office to write, but like in terms of like a spark or an idea, do you get those when you're in your office writing or do you find that those type of ideas come to you when you're just doing like everyday life stuff? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Like, for me, probably, and something I don't do as much because of things like podcasts, um, it's, <laughs> it's like when I'm listening to music, oftentimes if I'm like listening to music, whether I'm like at the gym when you could go to the gym or like going for runs, oftentimes I get inspired by music a lot um, or doing other things like that. But yeah, normally it's like the inspiration comes somewhere else and then, you know, going to the, to the office to kind of get it out there. Bike rides with Irving Hull. That's where you're at your most. Bike rides. Yeah, yeah. 
we got our we got our uh, our sleepy turtle bike rides on the weekends. We a lot of inspiration comes comes out of those ones. How, how do you and your brother, your you and your brother wrote this together? Like, how do you guys? Do you ever butt heads on ideas? Like, no, this should go this way. This is the way it should go. Oh yeah, for sure. That's, that's how do we uh, <laughs> how do we resolve this stuff? Like third parties, like where you guys are arguing. No, no. So the, the good thing is the resolution is is the resolution. So basically, it's like when there's nothing to fight over, then we know. Oh yeah, that's good. That works. <laughs> But I love um, it. I just love the name because you guys are the Razzos and everyone knows the Russo brothers now. So like, yeah, exactly. You, yeah. You've got to just go around. Go, Avengers Endgame. Yeah, that was actually me and my brother Joseph. Like, oh, really? I didn't realize that. Uh, Russo brothers? Razzos? Yeah, close stuff. It's the same thing. I'm going to start doing that, I think. It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the film is called Awake. It's currently on Netflix. It stars Gina Rodriguez, Francis Fisher, Jennifer Jason Lee, Barry Pepper, so many others. I really enjoyed it, Mark. I really appreciate the time, man. And uh, hopefully we'll see you soon whenever the hell this border opens up. And uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, get, get, get up here soon and... Uh, and uh, ho- hopefully see you and appreciate you having me on. Of course, man. I don't know what's going to happen sooner. Do I get back to Toronto or the Blue Jays are playing in Toronto? That's what we should put an over under. <laughs> That's the bet. Let's see, let's see what Puffy puts the odds on for that one. Puffy <laughs> we'll, is our we'll degenerate just... gambling friend. For we'll, those we'll, who are yeah, there. we'll make it a gold bar bet for him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Raz. Appreciate you. Awesome. Love it. Bye. All right. Once again. Jam-packed here with guests. My thanks to Billy Gill, to Mark Razzo. The film is called Awake. Check it out on Netflix. And my thanks to John Wertheim. The book is called Glory Days. Uh, off air, I was asking, Cody, do you think Wertheim, because at the end of the interview, he said something to the effect of, hey, can we get you to come down to the U.S. Open? I was like, oh, my God, yeah, I hope so. And he's like, well, I'm not good for much, but I'm good for that. So do you think that actually means he can hook me up with tickets? Because otherwise, what he means is if I email him and go, hey, thanks again for coming on. Hey, you mentioned the U.S. Open tickets. And then he writes back, yeah, here's the link. USTA.org. Good luck. That's a powerful man we were talking to, and I think that I think he, he's good for that. I think he can get you into the event. I think you should take him up on it. How do you do that? How do you handle those situations where people open a door for something that you're kind of going to be, you know, having to ask them to do something? Like, how do you handle those? Correct. And do I do it now or later? Meaning, do I email him now and go, hey, thanks so much, dude. Podcast is up. Here's a link. All the best. Oh, do it with the link. Or- That's good. When you send him the link... Hey, but here's the link to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. By the way, I'll be out in blah, blah, blah next week. So if you want to, yeah, I think that's the way. That's the play. But, but, but the U.S. Open is not till the last week of August. Well, whatever. Whenever it is. Like, I'll be, I happen to, so I, whenever, you know what? I happen, I'll be yeah. there. Like, you know what? You, you, you offered this like the other day and you know what? I will happen to be out there. So let me know. Like, put it back in his, you know, kind of tennis, play tennis with him. Put it back on his side of the court. <laughs> I, I hit him with a forehand volley. That's exactly what I'm doing right now. Okay, hopefully I can get some free tickets out of this. By the way, the book is great. To be clear, I didn't interview him just so I could try to get some free tickets. John is a great Little Stugats and everybody. There's a little Stugats and everybody. There's no question about that. Uh, next week, Boss Baby, and I cannot wait. I'm dying to talk to Sam Wasson. He wrote a book about the movie Chinatown, which is incredible. He was on Alec Baldwin's podcast. Here's the thing. I can only hope he's as good as he will be on Cinephile. So until then, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.